Welcome to the Board of Education, where troublemakers and system breakers gather to discuss how they are dismantling inequity in public education. Calling our meeting to order is Chairman of the Board, Jonathan Santos Silva. Welcome back. Welcome back. It's so good to be back here on the Board of Ed with all of you listening. Um, and it's good to be back here with my man, Doc. How's it going, Doc? Uh, things are, are awesome. We're, we're, we're heading into another great episode of the Board of Ed, so I'm so excited. And anytime I get to be with my friend, Jonathan Santos Silva, uh, is a good day for me. And I, I so appreciate that. Um, and I really appreciate you uh, for listening. Uh, just to see the, the um, engagements bumping up. Yeah. So are you all acting out on um, uh, hashtag back to back better? Back to better. Back you know, to off, better, yeah. yeah. Off of the conversation with Diana Kanoyer, you know, that was pretty awesome. Um, and we're looking forward to um, continuing to engage with you all this week as we turn to another member of our board, Dr. David Hardy. Um, yes. You know, so by way of introduction, Dr. David Hardy is um, a, a, a partner at Ed Elements, but he comes to that work from the really cool um, experience of having led a system, you know, being a superintendent or CEO, receiver, leading uh, a community through transformation. Uh, and I think that, you know, sometimes we downplay what it means to sit in that seat. We think like the yeah. higher up the, you know, the hierarchy, the farther you are from the community. Um, but I think that does a disservice to the type of educator David is mm -hmm. and what he can lend us having, you know, led from that vantage point. Yeah. And, you know, every episode so far, we've talked about the impact of COVID-19 on, on education, particularly education of underserved students. And I think it would be easy to think that these are completely unprecedented times. But, but David reminds us that they're, they're not, like, like nationally maybe, but, but communities have gone through these massive um, impactful changes um, for a variety of reasons. In our recent history, uh, the Gulf Coast area, particularly Louisiana and Mississippi, when Hurricane Katrina hit. Hmm. Right. And so, so I think David is, is really well positioned to point out to us that there are some, there are some lessons that we can learn um, all the way back to Katrina. Yeah. Let's take a listen. You know, so many of us realizing and seeing the devastation that happened in Louisiana, specifically New Orleans, and for those that lived it and experienced it and came back or those that saw it from their TV sets across the country, we saw a community still stay so true to their beautiful history and rich passion for music, art, and food, while at the same time, some very inequitable systems that had been existing for years were given the opportunity to change as a result of Katrina, whereas, you know, i.e. their school system, which was one of the lowest performing in the country, in, the, in their state and across the country, uh, completely changed the way that they do school there. Now, don't get me wrong, there were some plus and minuses, some grows and grows from that situation for Louisiana, but they came out better. Kids came out better because of it. And so I actually look at that as an example of what can happen when there is an opportunity for real change. And unfortunately, it's usually lended to natural disasters, right? And, and a, pandemic, a, pandem a pandemic of this situation or this magnitude is very similar. The only difference, and I thought about this yesterday, between Katrina and uh, the pandemic that we're facing now, is that that was a physical disruption that wiped out buildings, wiped out construction, wiped out 
ways that people lived in a very physical manner, which allowed for rebuilding and the thrust of charter networks and schools in a different way. This pandemic is different because people still see the same buildings they went to three and a half months ago and assume we have to or can go back to that. And so that is the only piece that I don't think is a direct correlation, but which I think will make this a little bit harder to create the change, but still the similar, um, similar challenge or opportunity. So, you know, your earlier comments, you know, you present this as really like this is it's a choice, right? Like it, we're not required to change. There's nothing about this pandemic that says we have to improve the system. This is a choice that we have to make. And I agree with you 100%. And I mean, even further, like that contrast of Katrina to now, it's like, yeah, there really wasn't a choice, right? When buildings are destroyed, we had to do something different. We had to rebuild. And so in rebuilding physically, maybe it lent itself to like, hey, maybe we should do something different. Whereas like, yeah, we could just go back to things as it was and we will have missed an opportunity to, to like put equity at the forefront. I'm wondering, you know, from your, your experience as a district level leader, as someone who has operated in that position and supported folks down to the school and the classroom level, but also working up to like say a board and a state level, do you have any thoughts on what either state or districts can do? Because a lot of what we've talked about has been like, we're focused on teachers on the front line uh, implementers of, of, of an instructional vision or of an academic or school vision. But what can the state or the districts do upon return to facilitate more innovation, to like center equity and center, you know, some of this, like we're not going back to school as usual. And here's what we're going to do to make sure you can reimagine something. Any ideas? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. And I think that's where a lot of my current work sits in this this uh, conversation around equity. We for many, many years have thought about classroom intervention, improving instruction, getting better curricular materials in front of kids, differentiated instruction, like all of the words that we're so familiar with when we talk about improving teaching and learning have been going on for years. For better or for worse, it's worked to some degree, it's been incremental to some levels, it's been successful in, in others. At the same time, that is not enough. And I think until states and districts actually embrace this as a system level change that's needed, we will still see some of the similar results. So what I would suggest or what I would put out there if I had a state chief sitting in front of me or a group of superintendents sitting in front of me, I would say a couple of things. Money makes the world go round. And if you put the right amount of incentive or push people to use money in a way to uh, change the way they operate, people will follow. So I think the way that we currently fund and structure and provide resources to schools, school districts from the state needs to be changed. It's, it's completely antiquated, right? I look at Title I funding right now and I look how people use it within districts. It completely misses the, the boat in so many ways if we're trying to actually reach the lowest performing kids in a, in a school district. So re, rethinking funding structures. I think the second piece is, is finding a way to um, create a, a political narrative that puts you know, equity as a word of positivity versus uh, villainizing it as, you know, because you are equitable, you are now only caring about black and brown kids. That's not what we're saying. Equity at the root is just saying, get people what they need to be successful. And therefore, 
Um, my son right now, for example, he doesn't need a computer sent home. We can provide him that. He just needs maybe a couple lessons to go off of versus another family may need a computer set up. They may need you know, a teacher to stop by every day. That's meeting our needs in an equitable manner. Until we change the way people think about the word equity and get political narrative around the word equity that is positive, um, we won't gain the traction we want. So I would say funding and how we narrate uh, what equity and what equity is actually needed in schools. Um, that would be a start. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's such an important distinction to make, mm -hmm. you know, what equity, what equity truly is, yep. you know, because I think we get caught up on equality. Yeah. And so every kid gets the same thing and we think we've done enough. You know, so, well, every, you know, we didn't send anybody home with a computer. So that's equality. Yeah. Right. But if, you know, like to David's point, his son has an internet at home, his son has a computer, then we have an inequity if say Doc's kid or my kid doesn't. So not all your right. virtual lessons are inaccessible to our children. So we're, we've yeah. created inequity. And I think that's a big part of um, some folks concerns about learning during COVID is that in our best efforts to try to respond overnight, seemingly, right? Mm -hmm. We didn't go far enough to create an equitable playing field for all kids. Yeah. This is, it, it echo, he echoes a little bit of what Diana was talking about um, and he goes into that further. When we look at this as an education problem or we're, we're sitting here talking about education, we can't lose the fact that there are families who want really good things for their kids, but it's not accessible. So the access to those things. And then you look at just who's affected, right? I mean, you look at Louisiana, where what, 70% 70, 70 of the cases in Louisiana uh, are of black people and they only make up 36% of the population. Um, these things are realities. And that stems from when we look at why we're, we're um, getting COVID-19 at a higher rate and dying from it. We look at all the health challenges we're presented with, high blood pressure, um, you know, high cholesterol, more at risk for heart disease, um, stress levels, all of hypertension, all these things, diabetes, are a result of systems that have put us in a place to absorb things that we don't need for our bodies and our minds and allowing people to profit off the back of that. So you have this, this have and have not situation where the have nots are getting all the things they, they don't need or actually make them feel worse. Why, why the, the haves can benefit off of that financially in their well-being and in education. So long-winded way of saying health, occupation, housing, and education are so intertwined in this battle for an equitable system that we can't ignore one uh, if we really want all of it to improve. No doubt. You know, I get frustrated sometimes when um, folks are talking about the racial breakdown of who gets infected and who's dying because I don't think they mean to, but it's almost like they can still blame, you know, black and brown people because, well, you, the hypertension, the blood pressure, and all this stuff is because of dietary choices. It's lifestyle. And we don't think about the ways that policy, to the point that you made, has kind of put people in lanes, right? It's not impossible to change your circumstance, but it certainly makes it harder when where you live can be dictated by someone else and what, you know, environmental factors that, you know, like when you talk about like the projects that are right next to say like the bus depot, right? And so what people are breathing and then kids are coming up with asthma. That's a pre-existing condition that makes you susceptible to like the most extreme uh, results of this, this, this virus. That's not a lifestyle choice necessarily right. that a child made. A child was born in that community, right? So I just like the way you break that down 
you know, because on the flip side, I think sometimes we make the work insurmountable for teachers and educators because we make it like, you know, that math lesson has got to not only get this kid into college, but it's got to address, you know, poverty and health issues and disparities. And it's like that that's way beyond the teacher's role. Like the teacher's role is critical. Right. It's critical, but it's a it's a piece of the puzzle. It's that's not right. the that's right. I mean, like, like I'm, I've been watching The Last Dance as I feel like every other sports fan in the country that's just thirsting for sports, right? I don't care who you are. It's like, I just, I'm tired of watching the 2009 Masters, right? I need something real right now. Um, so like The Last Dance kind of speaks to that, right? Dennis Rodman is one of the most prolific basketball players for his acumen to find the ball and rebound it. We didn't ask Dennis Rodman to shoot threes, even though he threw up one every once in a while. We didn't expect Dennis Rodman to uh, shoot free throws well. We were very good. We, I'm saying I'm not like a part of the Bulls organization here, but um, you know, the Bulls did a great job in identifying this is what we need to be successful and made sure he got what he needed to be successful and made us a championship team. Versus I feel like in education, we're asking teachers to be the Dennis Rodman of rebounding, but also the teacher who's able to pass the ball, shoot the ball, make threes, coach, you know, and that's a lot for a teacher. And I feel for our teachers who are trying to figure out how to make these connections with our kids when we're not giving them a simplified playbook and giving them their specific role in helping a child be successful. And I think it's the job of the, all the other adults in administration that we spend millions of dollars on to support what happens in that classroom by making equitable systems that allow teachers to do what they're good at, be the Dennis Rodman of their profession um, mm. and, and be able to just rebound or just teach in this situation. Uh, we do a disservice to our teachers when we don't pay attention to that. Yeah. So I'm not a basketball person, uh, but I, I think I get it. Uh, <laughs> and I think it's, it's a really powerful thing. Like we, we pushed, teachers to work in uh equal situations where everybody's teaching the same number of hours and they're you know they would try to balance classes so you have the same number of kids but in a different analogy it's like having your star trumpet player try to play the drums like that's just that's not what he's really well trained to do and we can get much more mileage out of, of putting people in the position to do the work that they're really good at and that's going to have a bigger impact on kids. Am I, am I reading that analogy, right? Yeah, you are. You are. I mean, I mean, for the basketball folks, they know Dennis Rodman was tremendous at rebounding, but you can't have five Rodmans on the court. Who's going to score. Yeah. yeah. You know, and yeah, I think, yeah. you know, I think like to bring that into the school, we often talk about student centered learning, wanting kids to pursue their dreams and having something personalized. And yet, we haven't created that for adults. I, I think it's kind of a hard thing to ask a teacher to do or an adult to figure out when we don't even create that sort of personalization and mm -hmm. differentiation and path for the adults. They're not, they don't have anything to mirror. Yeah. So, so it sounds like it, it really is just a systemic change, right? Like what does a system need to look like in order to truly provide that equitable access. A system that is driven by our kids, a system that is truly enabling our kids to realize the learning experiences they need to be self-directed, independent thinkers who are trying to make the next generation of people better. And that 
that doesn't look like a building to me. That doesn't look like kids are, you know, walking to school anymore. It, to me, it, it potentially a school is coming to them. People are, are meeting them at locations um, where they're doing some, you know, exploratory Montessori-esque type experiences that allow kids to think freely, come up with ideas and projects and, um, and are, are creating the next wave of, of innovation. Um, this looks like a community now where access is no longer a challenge and access, access is actually the, the floor, right? We are now liberated. We are now in a position of no longer thinking about equity. We're thinking about how we are truly free. And this looks, you know, 20 years from now, if the, the trend stays true, I mean, by 2024, the majority of kids that are walking into schools will be children of color. And so 20 years from, you know, 15 years after that, I mean, we're looking at a system of kids and people that look and operate very differently. And I think that's a beautiful thing because diversity creates success in a way that I think we've undersold and underappreciated. And we'll move from thinking in a deficit model to a asset model that will allow um, communities to thrive and allow them to be themselves, where we can have open conversations around difference because it is so accepted. So long, long windy way of saying that 20 years from now, the world we sit in is gonna be drastically different because of the way we think and the way that we're now able to operate because what has been able by folks 20 years from now like you. That's it, man. That is it for me anyway. Like this idea of allowing communities to be themselves, yep. to have voice and agency in what schools look like and what the outcomes are that we're tracking for kids that's vastly different than how we've operated you know so much of the education system whether we're talking about indigenous education um, or the broader education system has been about assimilation and assimilation to a standard that someone else who's not from where you're from gets to articulate yeah and i, I love this idea of recentering community i I think he hits on another thing that really is, is speaking to me, and that is um, recognizing my positionality as a, as a white male who's, who's been in the educational space. You know, we, we've spent a lot of time going into to communities, going, look at all the things that are wrong, let us help you fix them, and not enough time going, look at all the amazingly wonderful assets that are in this community, the power that exists uh, from the community of people, even though it, 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 it doesn't look or sound always like the community that I grew up in. And so taking that moment to really leverage the, the, the assets of a community, you know, you, you and I have a, a common friend, um, Christine Nieves, uh, who, who uh, uh, lives in Puerto Rico. And, and a deep part of her work is all about how that community came together in a way that, that the outside world was like, oh, no, you know, they're never, ever going to be able to take care of themselves. And they came out stronger on the other side of an absolute disaster um, because they have power in and of themselves to, to do the work. And so if we're, if we're in a true partnership with, with communities and schools, we, we have to bring the community into the school. Right. I think what's powerful about that connection is uh, Christine is leading also 
in response to a hurricane, Hurricane Maria. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I think the my wondering is, are we are we willing? Do we have the collective will to marshal the resources needed to re- respond to a different sort of disaster? Right. And you can argue, and I bet my Puerto Rican friends would argue that our marshaling of resources has been underwhelming at best. But there's a way that we respond when the damage is physical mm-hmm. that we haven't yet seen happen in this when the, the damage is a viral or, or the, the threat is viral. And so or emotional, you know, emotional, you know, we talk about yeah. trauma. Right. So I think I'm, I'm really glad that we were able to get David's perspective, you know, on this. Right. Looking at it from that thousand that 30,000 foot view. And as, it goes back to what I said at the beginning. I, you know, and, and just speaking out to our listeners. Right. Like. I hope you understand why we wanted David, right? That was not a stuffy top of the, you know, uh, uh, like a ivory tower perspective. That was a perspective from someone who's been deeply engaged and deeply cares about this education thing and has been doing it for a long time. Um, and he was able to give us some nuance about how we move a system. Yeah. You know, a friend of mine said recently, it's not about moving the mountain. It's about leveraging the mountain to move the people. And I think that's what he gives us is some nuance around how we use the mountain to move the people. Yeah. Reminds me, a good friend of mine once said that, uh, that solar powers don't empower the sun, right? It's the yeah. Way, yeah? <laughs> yeah. Solar panels don't empower the sun. The sun already had the power. And it's the I, I screwed that. Yeah. No, I, screwed no, that. Okay. I screwed that quote up, but, but I, I, you know, one of our early meetings, I remember you saying like, man, Man, he is smart. <laughs> I don't know. Man, I, don't know. I just, I just think you know, you know, if you go into a community and think you're riding in on horseback to save everyone, you can find a lot wrong. Yep. When you assume that the community already has value, and already has a contribution to make, it's not my job then to decide or decipher what is right and what is wrong. It's to listen radically, to partner to get into relationship and then to start asking, Hey, how do I help? Where can I plug in? Uh, and, uh, you know, I think that's a, a vastly different blueprint. It's a different map, mm-hmm. um, from what we've had, but I think it's the one that leads us to sustainable transformation where we have outcomes that communities value for their kids, the type of life that they want for their kids. And there it is. There's the nugget. Right. Uh, as always, please uh, stay engaged with us on social media. We're at the underscore board of Ed. That's B O R E D on Twitter and Instagram, the board of Ed, B O R E D on Facebook, and the board of Ed.com. That's the B O R E D of Ed.com. Jonathan, leave us with your parting thoughts. Two thoughts. One is keep using hashtag back to better. Let's keep it rolling. Absolutely. I want to hear what you want to see different. And then, as always, I just want to remind you, this episode, last episode, and every episode after, that what you do matters. We are so grateful to have you part of our community, to have you part of this journey with us. And we want to encourage you and embolden you to keep doing the work that you do that is so vital, not only for your students, their families, and the communities, but for our collective uh, liberation. You know, we are, only, we are stronger together then we are apart. And so keep plugging into the Board of Ed, keep plugging into the people who matter to you the most, and keep doing this essential work. I look forward to seeing you on the next episode of the Board of Ed. Stay bored. Yeah. Yeah.